Chapter 11. Blessed are the Peacemakers. As we come to consider this further characteristic of the Christian man, we are once more constrained to suggest that there is nothing in the whole range of Scripture which so tests and examines and humbles us as these Beatitudes. Here in this statement, Blessed are the Peacemakers, we have a further outcome and outworking of being filled by God. According to the scheme which we outlined in the last chapter, we can see how this corresponds to blessed are the meek. I suggested there that there was this correspondence between the Beatitudes which preceded and followed the statement in verse 6. Poverty of spirit and being merciful can be regarded together. The mourning for sin and being pure in heart are similarly connected. And in exactly the same way, the meekness and being peacemakers correspond to each other. And the link between them is always that waiting upon God for that fullness which he alone can give. Here then we are reminded once more that the outworking in the Christian of the Christian life is altogether and entirely different from everything that can be known by any man who is not a Christian. That is the message which recurs in every one of these Beatitudes and which obviously our Lord desired to emphasize. He was establishing an entirely new and different kingdom. As we have seen in all our previous studies, there is nothing more fatal than for the natural man to think that he can take the Beatitudes and try to put them into practice. Here once more, this particular Beatitude reminds us that this is utterly impossible. Only a new man can live this new life. We can see that this statement must have come as a very great shock to the Jews. They had the idea that the coming kingdom of the Messiah was to be a military one, a national, materialistic one. People are always ready to materialize the great promises of Scripture. They are still doing it, and the Jews fell into that fatal error. Here our Lord reminded them again at the very beginning that their whole idea was a complete fallacy. They thought the Messiah, when he came, would set himself up as a great king and that he would deliver them from all their bondage and would thus establish the Jews above everybody else as the conquering and the master race. You remember that even John the Baptist seems to have clung to that conception when he sent his two disciples and asked his famous question, Art thou he that should come, or look we for another? I know all about these miracles, he seems to say, but when is the big thing going to take place? And you remember how the people were so impressed after our Lord had performed that great miracle of the feeding of the 5,000 that they began to say, This is he undoubtedly. And then they went, we are told, and tried to take him by force to make him a king. It was always like that. But here our Lord says to them in effect, No, no, you do not understand. Blessed are the peacemakers. My kingdom is not of this world. If it were then my citizens would be fighting for this sort of thing. But it is not that. You are entirely wrong in your whole outlook upon it. And then he gives them this beatitude and stresses that principle once more. Surely this should impress us at the present time. Never, perhaps, was there a more appropriate word for this modern world of ours than this beatitude which we are studying together. There is perhaps no clearer pronouncement of what the Scriptures, and the New Testament Gospel especially, have to say about the world and life in this world than this. 
And of course, as I've been trying to point out as we have faced each of these Beatitudes, it is a very highly theological statement. Now I say that again deliberately, for there is no section of the New Testament that has been so misunderstood and abused as the Sermon on the Mount. You remember how it used to be the habit, especially in the early years of this century, and it still lingers, for certain people to say that they had no interest in theology at all, that they utterly disliked the Apostle Paul and regarded it as a calamity that he had ever become a Christian. That Jew, they said, with his legalistic notions, who came along and foisted his legalism upon the glorious, delightful, and simple gospel of Jesus of Nazareth. They were not interested in the New Testament epistles at all. But they were tremendously interested, they said, in the Sermon on the Mount. That was the greatest need of the world. All that was needed was to take seriously this beautiful idealism thus presented by the master teacher of Galilee. All we had to do was to study it and to try to persuade one another to put it into practice. Not theology, they said. That has been the curse of the church. What is needed is this beautiful ethical teaching, this marvelous moral uplift which is to be found here in the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount was their favorite portion of Scripture because they maintained it was so untheological, so utterly lacking in doctrine and dogma and all such wasteful interest. We are reminded here of the utter folly and futility of such a view of this glorious portion of Scripture. Let me put it like this. Why are peacemakers blessed? The answer is that they are blessed because they are so absolutely unlike everybody else. The peacemakers are blessed because they are the people who stand out as being different from the rest of the world, and they are different because they are the children of God. In other words, I say, we are again plunged immediately into New Testament theology and doctrine. Let me vary my question. Why are there wars in the world? Why is there this constant international tension? What is the matter with the world? Why have we had these world wars in this century? Why is there a threat of further war and all this unhappiness and turmoil and discord amongst men? According to this beatitude, there's only one answer to those questions. Sin. Nothing else. It is just sin. So immediately you are back at the doctrine of man and the doctrine of sin. Theology, in fact. The peacemaker, you see, has become different from what he was. There again is essential theology. The explanation of all our troubles is human lust, greed, selfishness, self-centeredness. It is the cause of all the trouble and the discord, whether between individuals or between groups within a nation or between nations themselves. So you cannot begin to understand the problem of the modern world unless you accept the New Testament doctrine with regard to man and sin, and here it is at once suggested to us. Or look at it in this way. Why is there so much trouble and difficulty in maintaining peace in the world? Think of all the endless international conferences that have been held in this present century to try to produce peace. Why have they all failed, and why are we now coming to the state when very few of us seem to have any confidence in any conference that men may choose to hold? What is the explanation of all this? Why did the League of Nations fail? Why does the United Nations organization seem to be failing? What is the matter? Now, I suggest to you that there's only one adequate answer to that question. It is not political. It is not economic. It is not social. 
The answer once more is essentially and primarily theological and doctrinal. And it is because the world in its folly and blindness will not recognize this that it wastes so much time. The trouble, according to the scripture, is in the heart of man. And until the heart of man is changed, you will never solve his problem by trying to make manipulations on the surface. If the source of the trouble is in the fountain and the origin from which the stream comes, is it not obviously a waste of time and money and energy to be pouring chemicals into the stream in an attempt to cure the condition? You must go to the source. There's the essential trouble. None of these things can possibly work while man remains what he is. The tragic folly of this 20th century is our failure to see that. And alas, it is not only the failure which is found in the world, it is a failure to be found even in the church herself. How often has the church been preaching nothing but these human efforts and endeavors, preaching the League of Nations and the United Nations? It is a contradiction of biblical doctrine. Do not misunderstand me. I'm not saying you should not make all these efforts internationally. But I am saying that the man who pins his faith to these things is a man who is not regarding life in the world from the standpoint of Scripture. According to the Scripture, the trouble is in the heart of man, and nothing but a new heart, nothing but a new man can possibly deal with the problem. It is out of the heart that evil thoughts, murders, adultery, fornication, jealousy, envy, malice, and all these other things proceed. And while men are like that, there will be no peace. What is in will inevitably come out. I say once more, therefore, that there is nothing I know of in Scripture which so utterly condemns humanism and idealism as the Sermon on the Mount, which has always apparently been the humanists' favorite passage of Scripture. Clearly, they have never understood it. They have evacuated it of its doctrine and have turned it into something which is entirely different. This teaching, then, is something which is of prime importance at the present hour, because it is only as we see our modern world in proper perspective through these New Testament eyes that we shall even begin to understand it. Are you surprised that there are wars and rumors of wars? You should not be if you're a Christian. Indeed, you should regard it as a strange and extraordinary confirmation of the biblical teaching. I remember some twenty years ago shocking certain nice Christian people because I could not be very enthusiastic about what was then called the Kellogg Pact. I happened to be at a Christian meeting when the news came through of the Kellogg Pact, and I remember a very worthy deacon in that meeting getting up and proposing that the meeting should not take its customary form of sharing experiences and considering problems of the spiritual life, but that the whole meeting ought to be given to talking about this Kellogg Pact. To him it was such a wonderful thing. It was something that was going to outlaw war forever. And he was amazed at my lack of enthusiasm. I think I need say no more. Our approach must be doctrinal and theological. The trouble is in the heart of man. And while it is there, these manipulations on the surface cannot possibly deal with the problem in any final sense. Bearing all that in mind, let us look at this great word positively. The great need of the world today is for a number of peacemakers. If only we were all peacemakers, there would be no problems. There would be no troubles. What then is a peacemaker? Obviously, again, 
it is not a matter of natural disposition. It does not mean an easygoing person. It does not mean your peace-at-any-price person. It does not mean the sort of man who says anything to avoid trouble. It cannot mean that. Have we not agreed all along that none of the Beatitudes describe natural dispositions? But not only that. These easygoing, peace-at-any-price people are often lacking in a sense of justice and righteousness. They do not stand where they should stand. They're flabby. They appear to be nice, but if the whole world were run on such principles and by such people, it would be even worse than it is today. So I would add that your true peacemaker is not an appeaser, as we say today. You can postpone war by appeasement, but it generally means that you are doing something that is unjust and unrighteous in order to avoid war. The mere avoidance of war does not make peace. It does not solve the problem. This generation ought to know that with particular certainty. No, it is not appeasement. What is it then to be a peacemaker? He is one whom we can say two main things. Passively, we can say that he is peaceable, for a quarrelsome person cannot be a peacemaker. Then actively, this person must be pacific. He must be one who makes peace actively. He is not content to let sleeping dogs lie. He is not concerned about maintaining the status quo. He desires peace, and he does all he can to produce peace and to maintain it. He is a man who actively sees that there should be peace between man and man, and group and group, and nation and nation. Obviously, therefore, I think we can argue that he is a man who is finally and ultimately concerned about the fact that all men should be at peace with God. There, essentially, is the peacemaker, both passively and actively, negatively and positively pacific. One who not only does not make trouble, but who goes out of his way to produce peace. What does this involve and imply? Clearly, in view of what I've been saying, it implies the necessity of an entirely new outlook. It must involve a new nature. To sum it up in a phrase, it means a new heart, a pure heart. There is, as we have seen, a logical order in these matters. It is only the man of a pure heart who can be a peacemaker, because, you remember, we saw that the person who did not have a pure heart, who had a heart which was filled with envy, jealousy, and all such horrible things, could never be a peacemaker. The heart must be cleansed of all that before one can possibly make peace. But we do not even stop at that. To be a peacemaker obviously means that one must have an entirely new view of self, and here you see how it links up with our definition of the meek. Before one can be a peacemaker, one really must be entirely delivered from self, from self-interest, from self-concern. Before you can be a peacemaker, you really must be entirely forgetful of self, because as long as you are thinking about yourself and shielding yourself, you cannot be doing the work properly. To be a peacemaker, you must be, as it were, absolutely neutral so that you can bring the two sides together. You must not be sensitive. You must not be touchy. You must not be on the defensive. If you are, you will not be a very good peacemaker. Perhaps I can best explain it like this. The peacemaker is one who is not always looking at everything in terms of the effect it has upon himself. Now, is not that the whole trouble with us by nature? We look at everything as it affects us. 
What is the reaction upon me? What is this going to mean to me? And the moment we think like that, there is of necessity war, because everybody else is doing the same thing. That is the explanation of all the quarreling and discord. Everybody looks at it from the self-centered point of view. Is this fair to me? Am I having my rights and dues? They are not interested in the causes they should be serving or the great thing that brings them all together, this church, society, or organization. It is, how is this affecting me? What is this doing to me? Now, that is the spirit that always leads to quarrels, misunderstandings, and disputes, and it is a negation of being a peacemaker. The first thing, therefore, we must say about the peacemaker is that he has an entirely new view of himself, a new view which really amounts to this. He has seen himself and has come to see that, in a sense, this miserable, wretched self is not worth bothering about at all. It is so wretched. It has no rights or privileges. It does not deserve anything. If you have seen yourself as poor in spirit, if you have mourned because of the blackness of your heart, if you have truly seen yourself and have hungered and thirsted after righteousness, you will not stand any longer on your rights and privileges. You will not be asking, what about me in this? You will have forgotten this self. Indeed, can we not agree that one of the best tests of whether we are truly Christian or not is just this? Do I hate my natural self? Our Lord said, He that loveth his life in this world shall lose it. By this he meant loving ourselves, the natural man, the natural life. That is one of the best tests of whether we are Christian or not. Have you come to hate yourself, your natural self? Can you say with Paul, O wretched man that I am? If you have not, and if you cannot, you will not be a peacemaker. The Christian is a man who has two men in him, the old and the new. He hates the old and says to him, Silence, leave me alone, I have finished with you. He has a new view of life, and this obviously implies that he has a new view of others also. He is concerned about them. He has come to see them objectively and is now trying to see them in the light of the biblical teaching. The peacemaker is the man who does not talk about people when they are offensive and difficult. He does not ask, why are they like that? He says, they are like that because they are still being governed by the God of this world, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience. That poor person is a victim of self and of Satan. He is hell-bound. I must have pity and mercy upon him. The moment he begins to look at him like that, he is in a position to help him, and he is likely to make peace with him. So you must have an entirely new view of the other person. It also means an entirely new view of the world. The peacemaker has only one concern, and it is the glory of God amongst men. That was the Lord Jesus Christ's only concern. His one interest in life was not himself, but the glory of God. And the peacemaker is the man whose central concern is the glory of God, and who spends his life in trying to minister to that glory. He knows that God made man perfect and that the world was meant to be paradise. So when he sees individual and international disputes and quarreling, he sees something that is detracting from the glory of God. This is the thing that concerns him, nothing else. Very well. With these three new views, this is what follows. 
He's a man who is ready to go humble himself, and he's ready to do anything and everything in order that the glory of God may be promoted. He so desires this that he is prepared to suffer in order to bring it to pass. He is even prepared to suffer wrong and injustice in order that peace may be produced and God's glory magnified. You see, he is finished with himself and with self-interest and self-concern. He says, what matters is the glory of God and the manifestation of that amongst men, so that if his suffering is going to lead to that, he will endure it. Now that is the theory. But what about the practice? This is very important because to be a peacemaker does not mean that you sit in a study and theoretically work out this principle. It is in practice that you prove whether you are a peacemaker or not. So I do not apologize for putting it very simply, indeed in almost an elementary manner. How does this work out in practice? First and foremost, it means that you learn not to speak. If only we could all control our tongues, there would be much less discord in this world. James, with his practical turn of mind, puts it perfectly. Be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath. That, I say, is one of the best ways of being a peacemaker, that you just learn not to speak. When, for example, something is said to you and the temptation is to reply, do not do it. Not only that, do not repeat things when you know they are going to do harm. You are not a true friend when you tell your friend something unkind that was said about him by somebody else. It does not help. It is a false friendship. Moreover, apart from anything else, unworthy and unkind things are not worth repeating. We must control our tongues and our lips. The peacemaker is a man who does not say things. He often feels like saying them, but for the sake of peace, he does not. The natural man is so strong in us. You often hear Christian people say, I must express my mind. What if everybody were like that? No, you must not excuse yourself or talk in terms of what you are by nature. As Christians, you are meant to be new men, made after the image and pattern of the Lord Jesus Christ, swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath. If I were preaching on the international situation, my one main comment at the present time would be this. I believe there is far too much talking going on in the international realm. I cannot see it does any good to be constantly blackguarding another nation. It is never a good thing to say these unkind, unpleasant things. You can organize for war. You can organize for peace. But stop talking. One of the first things in making peace is to know when not to speak. The next thing I would say is that we should always view any and every situation in the light of the gospel. When you face a situation that tends to lead to trouble, not only must you not speak, you must think. You must take the situation and put it into the context of the gospel and ask, what are the implications of this? It is not only I who am involved. What about the cause? What about the church? What about the organization? What about all the people who are dependent? What about the people who are right outside? The moment you think of it like that, you are beginning to make peace. But as long as you are thinking of it in a personal sense, there will be war. The next principle which I would ask you to apply would be this. You must now become positive and go out of your way to look for means and methods of making peace. 
you remember that mighty word, If thine enemy hunger, feed him. There is your enemy, who has been saying terrible things about you. Well, you have not answered him. You have controlled your tongue. Not only that, you have said, I can see it is the devil that is in him, and therefore I must not answer him. I must have pity and pray that God will deliver him and show himself as the dupe of Satan. Good, that is the second step. But you must go beyond that. He is hungry. Things have gone wrong for him. Now you begin to seek for ways of relieving him. You are becoming positive and active. It may mean sometimes that you, as we put it so foolishly, have to humble yourself and approach the other person. You have to take the initiative in speaking to him, perhaps apologizing to him, trying to be friendly, doing everything you can to produce peace. And the last thing in the practical realm is that, as peacemakers, we should be endeavoring to diffuse peace wherever we are. We do this by being selfless, by being lovable, by being approachable, and by not standing on our dignity. If we do not think of self at all, people will feel, I can approach that person. I know I shall get sympathy and understanding. I know I shall get an outlook which is based upon the New Testament. Let us be such people that all will come to us, that even those who have a bitter spirit within them will somehow feel condemned when they look at us and perhaps may be led to speak to us about themselves and their problems. The Christian is to be a man like that. Let me sum it all up like this. The benediction pronounced on such people is that they shall be called the children of God. Called means owned. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be owned as the children of God. Who is going to own them? God is going to own them as his children. It means that the peacemaker is a child of God and that he is like his father. One of the most glorious definitions of the being and character of God in the Bible is contained in the words, The God of peace that brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus. Hebrews 13.20 And Paul, in his epistle to the Romans, speaks twice of the God of peace and prays that his readers will themselves be granted peace by God the Father. What is the meaning of the Advent? Why did the Son of God ever come into this world? Because God... Though he is holy and just and righteous and absolute in all his qualities, is a God of peace. That is why he sent his Son. Where did war come from? From man, from sin, from Satan. Discord was brought into the world in that way. But this blessed God of peace has not, I say it with reverence, stood upon his dignity. He has come. He has done something. God has made peace. He has humbled himself in his Son to produce it. That is why the peacemakers are children of God. What they do is to repeat what God has done. If God stood upon his rights and dignity, upon his person, every one of us and the whole of mankind would be consigned to hell and absolute perdition. It is because God is a God of peace that he sent his Son and thus provided a way of salvation for us. To be a peacemaker is to be like God and like the Son of God. He is called, you will remember, the Prince of Peace. And you know what he did as the Prince of Peace. Though he counted it not robbery to be equal with God, he humbled himself. There was no need for him to come. He came deliberately because he is the Prince of Peace. 
But beyond that, how has he made peace? Paul, in writing to the Colossians, says, Having made peace through the blood of his cross, he gave himself that you and I might be at peace with God, that we might have peace within, and that we might have peace with one another. Take that glorious statement of the second chapter of Ephesians. For he is our peace, who hath made both one, and hath broken down the middle wall of partition between us, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, even the law of commandments contained in ordinances, for to make in himself of twain one new man, so making peace. It is all there, and that is why I kept that to the end, that we might remember whatever else we may forget, that to be a peacemaker is to be like that. He did not clutch at his rights. He did not hold on to the prerogative of deity and of eternity. He humbled himself. He came in the likeness of a man. He humbled himself even to the death of the cross. Why? He was not thinking of himself at all. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. That is the New Testament teaching. You finish with self, and then you begin to follow Jesus Christ. You realize what he did for you in order that you might enjoy that blessed peace of God, and you begin to desire that everybody else should have it. So, forgetting self and humbling self, you follow in his steps, who did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth, who, when he was reviled, reviled not again, when he suffered, he threatened not, but committed himself to him that judgeth righteously. That is it. God, give us grace to see this blessed, glorious truth and make us reflections, reproducers of the Prince of Peace and truly children of the God of Peace.